Today we're starting a new series. It was interesting, a couple weeks ago I put something out online, and I said, you know, I'm curious to hear, I'm, I'm in the process of planning my preaching schedule for 2020. And I said, I'm curious to hear, as I put this together, if there's anything in particular that, that you as a church family are hoping will be included in that preaching schedule. And I heard a variety of things, and some of them I'm going to be able to incorporate throughout the course of 2020 in the messages uh, that I'll be sharing. Uh, but some of the themes that were shared in, the, in that responses, in the responses that, that several of you shared, show up in the books of First and Second Thessalonians. And so they're not very long books, but we're going to take a look at both of them during the coming weeks. So we're going to start today with First Thessalonians 1. And you can see uh, from the screen behind me here, we're, we're talking about this idea of progressing in faith as we look through this book. So you'll see this idea conveyed here in a variety of ways. As faith matures, as faith progresses, as faith grows, you'll see that all throughout this book in a variety of ways. But today specifically, we're going to be talking about this idea of who are you imitating and who is imitating you. So who are you imitating and who's imitating you? This is a thought that comes up here in 1 Thessalonians 1. So if you would take your Bibles and turn with me, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. And uh, we'll read verses 1 through 10. And this is what it states. 1 Thessalonians 1, starting with verse 1, it says, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers. Remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers loved by God, that He has chosen you, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake." And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for His Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Let's pray. Lord, we thank You for Your Word, and we thank You for the privilege to be able to start off our week studying it together. And Lord, we pray that you would open our minds and our hearts to understand it and to grow from it, to ask questions that get prompted because of it. And we pray, Lord, that our faith in you would be developed, that it would be strengthened, that we would progress in faith like we could see you were encouraging the people of the city of Thessalonica to do. This early church is being addressed here in Paul's letter. Lord, we pray that you'd encourage our hearts and help us to understand more about what it means to walk with you by faith as we study this letter together over the coming weeks. And we commit our time to you now and thank you for all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. 
So the other night we had a dinner here at the church. It was actually a, a chilly night. Um, and I say that not in temperature, but in food. Uh, a variety of families brought chili, and there were a variety of, uh, you know, just styles of cornbread and some other sides and things like that. Um, and it was basically people that were involved in the midweek community groups, the first Wednesday of the month, uh, getting together and enjoying that time uh, together, although this technically wasn't the first Wednesday because that was at New Year's, so we kind of bumped it to the second Wednesday. But we had a dinner here at the church. We were in, enjoying some chili together, enjoying some fellowship uh, I always enjoy meals like that. I always think it's a lot of fun. Uh, I always enjoy the conversation. I enjoy the fellowship. I enjoy hanging out together. And as the meal was winding down, I noticed something else that I, that I appreciated, and I watched it taking place all around the room. So many of the families that were there had their young children with them. And once the meal was finished, and the parents were all cleaning up and putting tables and chairs and things like that back where they belong, many of the children noticed what their parents were doing, and they joined in. And so you have little children trying to lift up the tables and carry them to different places, and, and then children grabbing chairs and trying to figure out, all right, what are, what are parents doing? So, you know, can we join in on this? And I saw different pockets of this uh, happening throughout the room as the children were copying their parents and doing what their parents were doing. Now, I say this because this is a theme that comes up in the portion of Scripture that we're looking at today, but even before we dig into that, let me say something else. Most people underestimate their level of influence. Most people. We underestimate our level of influence. I think it's more likely than not that each of us have several, if not many people, who are trying to imitate us. Now, we may not realize that that's what they're doing, but they absolutely are. And just for fun, have you ever tried, and this could be kind of a weird thing to think through, but have you ever tried to figure out who might be trying to imitate you? Do you ever try and figure that out? Do you ever notice it when it's happening? Or try and figure out if somebody is doing that? And, you know, maybe I should even say, are you comfortable with somebody doing that? I think that that could, uh, you know, could create a little bit of a, a pressure that might feel a little bit intimidating in some respects. If you think that people might be copying you, does that make you then responsible for the decisions that they make? So I think we're being copied. I think we're being imitated more than we realize. Now, when you get to the young church in Thessalonica that's referenced here in Paul's letter, this was a church that he says, and we'll dig into this in a few moments, but this is a church that he said was setting an example for other believers who were living during that era. They were an example. And their example was an inspiration to Christians living all throughout the known world at their time. I think their example is profitable for us as well. But these were people who were being imitated by others. And as we study this letter together, as we're, we're looking at this, this, the, the content that Paul wrote to the church at Thessalonica and seeing their example and seeing the, the, just the guidance that the Holy Spirit was giving them, I think that there's a helpful combination of things taking place here that will serve to be helpful to us as we try to mature in our faith, as we try to progress in our faith. So what does this opening chapter reveal about a life that's worth imitating? You know, what are some things that we should notice from this portion of Scripture that could be helpful to us? Well, one of the things that I think it shows us in regard to a life worth imitating is that I think... As the Lord works in us and works around us, He develops thankful hearts within us. 
And I think one of the things he does is that he helps us to notice work that's going on or labor that he's inspiring, and he helps us to learn to be thankful for it. It's this mindset, this attitude that he develops within us. Let me reread the first few verses again. But here we see this example of giving thanks for the labor that God is inspiring. So Paul starts this off. He says, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy. And by the way, Silvanus, who's referenced here, he's also referenced in Scripture as Silas. So sometimes here he's called Silvanus. He's also called Silas. But it says, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. And then in verse 2 he says, we give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Let me pause there for just a moment. I find the life and the ministry of the Apostle Paul inspiring. I find it very inspiring when I read through the Scriptures and I see the things that took place. I find his example very inspiring. When I see the examples and read these things of how the Lord used him, particularly during the second half of his life, I feel motivated to take greater steps of faith. And I find myself caring less and less and less about the trappings of a safe and comfortable life in this world. And let me just say this. If you're in the second half of your life, I hope you'll take inspiration from the Apostle Paul because I think sometimes we think, oh, the Lord can only use me when I'm young. It's like, really, the Lord can only use you when you're still growing in wisdom, not when you've attained greater wisdom? That's fascinating. What a dumb thought we sometimes think for being so wise. You know, the second half of your life, you are so useful. You're so useful. And when you, when you look at what the Lord did through the Apostle Paul during the course of the second half of his life, it's fascinating. Right up to the end. Right up to the end. He didn't waste a moment. Now, Thessalonica at the time was a prosperous city in the Roman Empire. And during that era of time, they enjoyed a considerable amount of freedom. They were granted their, their status as what was known as a free city. So they had a lot of free commerce, a lot of free trade, things of that nature, because they had a reputation in general for supporting the empire. So the empire rewarded them with their freedom as a free city. It was the capital of Macedonia. It was an area that was well populated. I've read up on the population, had about 100,000 people, give or take, living in the city at the time. And if you went to the city, you would learn a lot of things about the people. And one of the things you would learn about the people if you went there during the time this letter was being written was that they worshipped the Roman deities. They worshipped the Roman gods. Uh, but if you also went throughout the city, you could see pockets of people who feared the true and living God. There were all sorts of pockets of Jewish believers all throughout the city. And so when the Apostle Paul went to Thessalonica, he connected with them. When he visited there, he went and he spoke in the local synagogue over the course of three weeks, the book of Acts tells us. And he showed from the Scriptures that Jesus is the Messiah. And people began placing their trust in Christ. And many of those early believers were quite enthusiastic in their faith, but not everyone was happy about that. When you look in Acts chapter 17, and I'm not going to uh, take us over there uh, right yet, but in Acts chapter 17, it actually tells us that a riot broke out in opposition to the gospel. As the gospel was being preached there, a riot breaks out. And you have a man named Jason who was hosting Paul and Silas, so he's hosting them in his house. He was brought before the authorities, he was questioned, and he was actually forced to pay some kind of a security 
in the midst of all of this uh, because this riot was going on, and so he's being threatened and questioning or questioned because he's you know hosting Paul and Silas, and and Paul and Silas. Uh, the teaching of the gospel uh, is people's hearts are being impacted by that. And then some people look at that and they say, well, we're not comfortable with the gospel spreading throughout the city. And so this riot starts up as people try and oppose it. And while this was going on, you have some people that have come to faith in Christ that are scared that people might actually try and injure Paul and Silas. And so Scripture tells us that they kind of they take them away by night and send them to Berea so that they wouldn't be harmed in the midst of the uproar. Now, I look at that, and in one sense, you're like, man, that must be scary. And then there's another part of me that's like, man, that must have been fun. Now, I, that's because I have a screw loose. I get it, right? But I look at that, and I, I think, man, that must have been fun. You know, yeah, I, I can't help but wonder if, as Paul and Silas were being <laughs> like ushered out of the city, if in one sense they're like, okay, wow, this got, this got a little scary. But if it, a, a part of them was also like, this is way better than just sitting around doing nothing, you know? It's like, I, I, I think that's fantastic. And so you have, by the grace of God, the church at Thessalonica, it continues to grow. They're very enthusiastic for their faith. You have the Lord inspiring them to live out their faith in the midst of a culture that obviously wasn't too pleased with it. And, and they continue to disciple new believers, serving one another, encouraging one another, helping people, even helping people that didn't share their faith trying to, to show the mercy and grace and love of Christ in the midst of a very hostile context. And yet they also maintain their hope in Christ, even though there were apparently plenty of people in their city who were now threatening their well-being because they had pledged their allegiance to Christ. So that's something I think that, that many people were probably pretty thankful for during that time. Many believers were, as they could see the work, the labor that the Lord was inspiring, particularly in the city of Thessalonica. But the Scripture goes on to talk about something else when we're talking about this idea of a life that is imitated. A life that's, that's worth imitating is a life that demonstrates the power of the gospel. Look at verse 4 down to the first half of verse 5. It says, For we know, brothers, loved by God, that He has chosen you, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. Now, when you're in the midst of a ministry like the Apostle Paul was allowed to have during this season, there can be all sorts of setbacks and seasons that leave you feeling maybe downcast or drained or discouraged. And I'm certain that Paul went through seasons that, that felt that way. But then there's also moments where you can find yourself saying, I'm so glad I didn't quit because now I get to see this. So glad I didn't quit because I get to see this. And I suspect that that's how Paul felt toward the Thessalonians when he started receiving reports about how their young faith was progressing. They were growing in their faith apparently quickly. And they had lots of questions. And by the way, as we, as we look through this letter, you're going to see that one of the things that Paul's trying to do is answer the questions of these people who are trying to grow in faith. They have all sorts of questions, and they're like, Paul, what, is, what happens when this happens? And what happens with this? And this word is getting back to him, and so he writes this letter to them. And he says, listen, here's what happens when this happens, or here's why the Lord does this. But he also, he's starting this letter off just saying, look, I'm ridiculously encouraged by what I can already see the Lord doing in your heart and doing in your life. You have the Thessalonians here demonstrating the power of Christ's gospel, which was at work within them. And when you look at Paul's words here, he says that it was obvious to him 
when he observed what was taking place in their lives, that God had chosen them. That's what he talks about here. He says, it's, you know, it's obvious God's chosen you, right? They received the gospel joyfully. They worshiped Christ openly. They demonstrated the power of Christ. They demonstrated the presence of the Holy Spirit. And the ways in which they were conducting themselves, the way they were carrying their lives in the midst of a decadent society, made it clear that they were people who now possessed new convictions. They were showing godly restraint. They were, they were showing the heart of Christ in the midst of a culture that didn't really support that. It was obvious that their hearts had been changed. And by the way, it's interesting to observe what the Lord does in a life when He changes their heart. When the Lord changes somebody's heart, you start to see it in all sorts of areas. Not only do their beliefs change, but their practices begin to change as well. Frequently, when that happens, it will be the people who, who know the person best who begin to see it most distinctly. I still recall, and I have some good stories about this, uh, but I, I could still recall the reaction of my younger sisters. I have only sisters. I don't have any brothers. I just have younger sisters. I was the oldest, and uh, I picked on them incessantly and, and just tortured them and was mean to them and rude to them in all kinds of ways. And, you know, just like an older brother should, I don't know. And uh, I remember at one point, um, you know, as I started to get really serious about my faith in Christ, uh, I just, I, I couldn't tolerate doing that anymore. Just the way I spoke to my sisters began to change, and the way I treated them, and just kind of the mindset that the Lord developed within me. I went from being an antagonist to having this feeling of responsibility for them, where I could tell the Lord was transitioning my mindset into one of, you know, help nurture your sisters, help, help care for them, help uh, encourage them to follow the Lord as well. And um, my sisters often will point back to that season of life and say that they could tell that my faith in Christ was serious because of the ways in which I treated them. They could tell that the Lord changed my heart because all of a sudden I became a very pleasant brother. <laughs> I became a very kind brother to them. I, I was, they could see that I was going out of my way to speak words of encouragement instead of cutting them down or to try and just be protective and nurturing toward them. When the Lord changes your heart, He changes your behavior. If you believe the gospel, you believe the good news that Jesus Christ embodies and proclaimed, don't hesitate to be transformed by it. If you believe it, don't hesitate to demonstrate it. The Lord will use that to have a powerful impact on the people that He allows you to have relationships with. Something else that comes up in this portion of Scripture with that in mind is this idea of copying and being copied. Copying and being copied. If someone said to you, copy and be copied, right? Some of you are teachers. I'm not talking about assignments, right? We don't want to do that. Copy and be copied. Well, what do I mean by that? Well, what's the Scripture say? Look at the second half of verse 5 down to verse 8. It says, You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake, and you became imitators of us and of the Lord. For you received the word in much affliction 
with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. I once read uh, an obscure fact about President Harry Truman. So sometimes I use historical examples because a lot of times in my reading, I I just really enjoy reading up on uh, different facets of history. Anyone else here consider themselves kind of a history buff or nerd, whatever word you want to use for us, a few of us, right? But this is how history nerds raise our hands. We go like this, we go like this. It's more of a head nod. I saw, I saw that. I saw that. It's like, yeah, we don't need to, we don't flail it, right? You know, it's just like, yes, absolutely. Very quiet, very dignified people you are. Well, I join you. I'm among your ranks. And uh, I was reading up on something interesting that President Harry Truman chose to do during the course of his presidency. And President Truman, uh, you know, I mean, at the time, you know, you, you think, you know, this era of the 40s and the early 50s, obviously you're not going to have instant communication in certain areas like we have, so correspondence is going to be utilized a lot more. And when you're president, you have all sorts of people writing to you, and you have all sorts of formal correspondence that you need to deliver. But in the midst of that, he'd also get a lot of personal correspondence. And he made a point while he was president to not use White House postage whenever he was sending a personal letter. Now, do you think anyone would have gotten on his case if he used a White House stamp to send a letter? He's sending out who, who knows how many letters, hundreds and hundreds of letters in a short period of time, I'm sure, right? So if there's a personal letter in the midst of all that, who's even going to know? Who's even going to care? Even if he just openly admitted it, I don't think anyone would care. But he felt convicted that as President of the United States, I should not be using taxpayer-funded stamps and postage to pay for my personal correspondence because he believed, and he was right about this, that if a man can be trusted with little things, he can be trusted with big things. If you can't trust somebody with little things, if you can't trust somebody to show integrity in small areas, you can't trust them to show integrity in big areas. And so he thought, you know what, since it bothers my conscience to use a White House stamp, For personal correspondence, I will pay for my own postage. And so he did that. And he would keep his postage separate from formal correspondence and the postage that he would use in that respect. And I thought, wow, that's really interesting. And I remember reading that years and years ago. So you know what I do? There are a lot of things that come to me as your pastor. And you know what? We have some church postage in there. I've never once had anyone in, in my 20 plus years of being a pastor ask me if I use church postage to mail personal correspondence. But can I tell you that because of the example of Harry Truman, I always kept that in the back of my mind. I thought, hey, don't use a church stamp for your personal correspondence. And then sometimes you find yourself stuck. And it's like, oh, wait, I'm stuck. Like, I need to send this out now. So you know what I've done when I've had moments like that? I pay the church twice for any stamp that I've had to use. So it's really to your benefit if I've ever used a church stamp, because they're like 50-some cents, and every time I use a church stamp, I'm like, all right, that's a dollar. And I try and do that to discourage my, you know, it's like, pay a dollar, just pay a dollar, you got to pay a dollar. Truman would approve, you got to pay the dollar, so that's what I do. Um, But I look at that, and I think that's a great example, because if you can't be trusted to do some, you know, if you can't be trusted in a small area, you can't be trusted in a big area. 
And so here you have Paul and his ministry companions. You have guys like Silas. You have guys like Timothy who are known to be men of integrity. And they displayed that, as he's describing here, they display that to the Thessalonians. He says to them effectively, you know what kind of men we were when we were among you. You could see the kind of life we were living among you. And now keep in mind, as this, being, as this is being spoken, this is even before the pages of the New Testament were written. So they didn't have the New Testament as you and I have it. So this is before the pages of the New Testament were written. That young church learned what it meant to be a Christian by hearing the words that these men spoke and observing the lives that these men led. That's how they learned what it meant to be a Christian. By hearing what they spoke and seeing the lives that they led. That's how they learned what it meant. They became imitators of Paul and Silas and Timothy. They became imitators of them, and Paul also makes it clear that they became imitators of them and of the Lord, right? Because Paul was trying to imitate Christ and display the heart of Christ to these people, but yet they learned about Christ through Paul's teaching, and they believed his teaching because his lifestyle backed up what he was proclaiming. He wasn't saying one thing and then doing another. And we're told that they received this teaching with joy. It was great affliction they were dealing with, but they, they received it with joy. And I wish that we could always receive the teaching of God's Word with affection, with joy, the other day, I, uh, my daughter and one of her friends were with me. We were giving her, do- her friend a ride home. And uh, her friend was telling me that her pastor, quote, gives a long speech every Sunday. That's what she said. My pastor gives a long speech every Sunday. And I said, really? I said, how long is it? <laughs> and she said, oh, it's got to be like 15 minutes. It's got to be like 15 minutes. And then I told her how long I typically preach. And I'm pretty sure I may have scared her away from visiting our church now. <laughs> I was like, Dah. it's like maybe I should have told her I preach in 15-minute segments, you know, 10-minute segments, right? Yeah, it's be I preach 10 minutes. I just say the rest under my breath. Here it says the Thessalonians were learning, to, you know, they're learning to model the heart of Christ, which was first demonstrated to them by Paul and others, and now they had become an example to many other believers who had heard about their steadfast faith and how they received the gospel with joy. They received the word with joy. They copied, and now they were being copied. So they copy those who preach the gospel and demonstrate the gospel to them, but now they're being copied by believers all over the known world at that time. Their testimony, their reputation, it was inspiring people in places that they had never been. People all over the place had heard about the Thessalonians and their great faith. And I have to say, even now, here we are on the other side of the world, couple thousand years later, and their example is an inspiration to us. I find it inspiring that their faith was known to be so strong in the midst of their affliction that people in other places that they had never been had also heard about it, and it was kind of encouraging everybody. They copied, and now they were being copied. That's a pattern for us as well. Copy and be copied. We're called to copy Christ. And as we copy Him, we're also invited to set an example for those around us. Can I give you some marriage advice or relationship advice or parenting advice that I think is true? Now, you have to wait a few more years to see if any parenting advice I give is worth anything, all right? My kids are all teenagers. You've got you to gotta give them until they're 25, all right? And then you could decide whether or not any advice I ever gave was, was useful, okay? If you really want good advice, talk to Karen Fender, all right? Her kids are all grown. Um, 
But uh, if you, do you ever find yourself saying, man, if I could just change my spouse in this area, <laughs> or if I could change this annoying habit that my child has in this area, wouldn't that be swell? You don't have to admit it, because I know they're sitting right next to you. Just think it, all right? You don't have to say it out loud. Can I, can I tell you how it's done? Can I tell you how to change your spouse and change your kids? All right, next week, remind me to tell you the answer to that. That's the hook. No, I'm kidding. I'll tell you now. <laughs> the, uh, the way you change your spouse, the way you change your kids is to copy Christ. Now, what do I mean by that? Copy Christ. What will happen is they will see your example over time. And I believe that the Lord will use that example to speak to their hearts. Now, do I have any justification for saying this? Why would I say that? I mean, this is a portion of Scripture here that talks a lot about people imitating the faith of others. So I'm saying if you want to change your spouse or change your kids, copy Christ. Because the truth is only the Lord can change a person's heart, right? But does He not use the example of other people to be part of that process? Let me, let me show you what I mean. Look what it tells us in 1 Peter 3. And in 1 Peter 3, it's, talking, it's giving some relationship advice. And in 1 Peter 3, verses 1 and 2, it says this, In the same way, you wives must accept the authority of your husbands. Then, even if some refuse to obey the good news, your godly lives will speak to them without any words. They will be won over by observing your pure and reverent lives. Isn't that an amazing portion of Scripture? So if you want to change your spouse, copy Christ. If you want to change your kids, copy Christ. We need to preach the gospel with words, but sometimes if you want the words to be listened to, it needs to be backed up with the life that shows that you really believe it. Now there's one other thing that this portion of Scripture brings out, and I want to point it out to us today as we kind of wrap this up. And that's this. In verses 9 and 10, it tells us, effectively, to throw down our idols. Verse 9 and 10, it says this, For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for His Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. So again, the final area that I see in this chapter regarding the example of the Thessalonians was their willingness to turn from idols to worshiping Christ. Now again, keep in mind in the context that they lived in, they were surrounded by nationalistic deities that were tied to Greek and Roman myths. And the risk you could run in that particular context when you didn't worship these deities was being thought of as unpatriotic or maybe even bad luck for your city. We're told in Acts chapter 17, verse 7, you don't need to turn there, I'll just read a small part of it to us. But in, in Acts chapter 17, verse 7, that one of the criticisms that these early believers received was this. It says this, it says, They are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying there is another king, Jesus. So that was the criticism that was being levied against them. This is why there was this big riot in the city. As they began following Jesus, they have some people here saying, hey, wait a second, they're saying there's another king instead of Caesar. They're saying that this Jesus is their king. So in their context, to turn from worshiping these, these pagan Roman deities 
or to pledge this you know, uh, worshipful allegiance to someone like Caesar, to turn from that idolatry in their context, that involves some genuine social risk. You know, it might even cost you your life in a context in which they lived in. Now, I wish it wasn't true, but in our modern context, let's not just make this about other people, let's make this a little bit about us too, we are just as likely to develop idols as the Romans were. Think about this for just a second. Our idols might not be made of wood. Our idols might not be made of bronze. There are plenty of things in our lives that do two things. This is how you can sometimes identify if there's an idol present in your life. Ask yourself if there's something in your life that takes your focus off of God, for starters. Is there something in your life that takes your focus off of God? If it takes your focus off of God, you may have discovered an idol in your life. Or if if there's something in your life that promises you a false sense of deliverance that tells you you don't need Christ, You've discovered an idol in your life. Something that takes your focus off of God, something that promises you a false sense of deliverance. So let me give you a few examples that maybe some of us wrestle with. I think work can become an idol, because I think work at times can, I think work is good, but shouldn't be worshipped, right? We're called to work, we're called to be good stewards of our time, but work can become an idol if it takes our focus off of God or if it promises us a false sense of of deliverance. I think other things can as well. Success can become an idol. Materialism, the opinions of others, phones, dating relationships, money, sex, power, all of these things can become idols. I've even witnessed some Christian leaders turn their ministries into idols, which seems ridiculous, doesn't it? But it happens. John Calvin once said of our hearts, believe it was him who said it. He said, our hearts are like idol factories. They just produce idol after idol after idol apart from the Lord's intervention. So what takes your focus off of God? Or what do you find yourself relying on for deliverance from grief or from anger or from loneliness? These are things worth exploring because when you explore it, and maybe you don't want to explore it, I think sometimes I prefer to live in ignorance about some of the things I need to change about me, but that's not really healthy, right? And so as we ask these questions, all right, Lord, what's taking my focus off of you, or what am I looking to deliver me from these things? Is it you or is it something else? If the answer is something else, well, then you've discovered an idol that needs to be thrown down. And that's what the Thessalonians were doing. You know, Paul tells us that the Thessalonians had turned from their idols, so they turned from the idols and to God. They're now being, you know, as they've turned to God, they're now being encouraged by the hope that they had in the imminent return of Jesus and His promise to deliver us from the wrath to come. Our idols cannot deliver us, but Jesus Christ absolutely can. So as we kind of tie this up today, Let me just ask a couple more questions, and I just want you to wrestle with this for a moment. Who are you imitating? And who's imitating you? As you learn to imitate Christ, He will influence others through the power of His gospel that's being displayed in your life. That's what we see taking place here in Thessalonica, 
And the Lord still does that in your life and in my life in the generation in which we live. Don't be afraid to be copied. I know that that sounds intimidating. I know that that sounds awkward. I know that that sounds maybe like more responsibility than at times you would prefer to take on. But don't be afraid to be copied. Why? Well, your life is one of the most powerful tools that the Lord is using at present in His mission to rescue and redeem humanity. Your life is one of His most powerful tools. So don't be afraid to be imitated. Don't be afraid to be copied. Allow the Lord to use you in that kind of way, like He used Paul, like He used Silas, and like He used this early church in the city of Thessalonica. Great things were done through the lives of these people, and I believe He'll do the same through your life and mine. Let's pray. Lord, thank You so much for just the privilege that it is to be able to look at a portion of Scripture like this today and to meditate on these things and to just realize what You were doing in and through the people of Thessalonica. Lord, we know that this was a a young group of believers who were dealing with all sorts of persecution in the midst of their city, but yet... You filled them with joy in the midst of their affliction. You filled them with hope in the midst of their trials. And you helped them to understand more about who you are. And you also provided examples for them to copy. And then others eventually started copying them. So Lord, we pray that our hearts and our lives would reflect the truth of your gospel. That we would be mirrors who reflect the heart of your son, Jesus Christ. And that we would honor and glorify your name. Lord, thank you so much for the encouragement we receive from your word. And we pray, Lord, that if we discover that there are any idols in our lives, and all of us wrestle with these things in all sorts of ways, but Lord, if we discover that there are any idols present, we pray, Lord, that we would throw those things down, that we would not continue to invite things into our lives that take our focus off of you or that produce this false sense of security this false sense of dependence in the midst of our sorrow or loneliness or trial or whatever we're going through. Lord, we know we can depend on You. And You've shown Yourself to be true time and time again. And so we thank You for the encouragement that You give to us as we, as we read Your Word, but as, as we also are mindful of Your presence with us right here and now. So Lord, we pray that You do Your work in our hearts, and as You change our hearts, we pray that we would be used of You to be a blessing to somebody else maybe many people, by your grace. We're grateful for all these things, and we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.